Beasley and uh, Ridgecrest Baptist Church, Lord, we want to ask you to bless, first of all, this morning, uh, Matt. I just pray for this man that is uh, alongside the other elders, uh, pastors at Ridgecrest, that he is uh, enjoying you, Lord, that you are uh, uh, shaping him and molding him into gold, um, that you are uh, using the uh, circumstances that he faces from day to day and uh, the challenges that he faces from day to day as a husband and father and a pastor to uh, refine him and to ready him for eternity. Lord, I pray that in that uh, work that you're doing on him and to him, that you'll do something through him and the other pastors at Ridgecrest. So Lord, we just pray that you would bless that church, that you would equip the saints, that you would uh, raise them up to be a salty, bright, aromatic people uh, as they go about their week uh, in their neighborhoods, in their workplace and their homes, Lord, uh, just entrusting this church family and these brothers and sisters to you. Thankful for the opportunity to lift them up this morning. Lord, I pray too in these next few minutes that you'll use uh, um, these few words uh, to give us a view of your greatness, your goodness, your love for us, your uh, surprise mercy, um, maybe even a sense of humor uh, that we can have as a result of what we see that you've done for us in these next few minutes. Lord, also, maybe more than that, Lord, I pray that we will see uh, and sort of uh, uh, land on a sobriety about our calling um, and about our place, what you've, what you've called us to. I'm trusting these few minutes to you in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to the book of Job, chapter 6. Last week we heard from a couple guys, Bildad primarily and his buddy Eliphaz. There's another guy that we didn't hear from last week, Zophar. These three supposed friends of Job um, didn't know God very well. And God even commented on this at the end of the book. He had Job actually um, um, mediate for them. Uh, God was not happy with them. In fact, it says he was angry with them because they did not represent him well. They represented God as a grumpy building inspector. Maybe a common thought about who God is even today, or people just view God as this sort of cosmic killjoy that's just waiting to smash you. Um, this vision of a building uh, inspector that's walking around with a sharp pencil and a clipboard ready to mark infractions, it may be a common view of who God is, and that's how these guys viewed God. They presented God as basically unknowable, uh, he's not someone that we can actually connect to and be close to, and he's not someone that, uh, who is disclosing himself to us. Um, they presented themselves to as not, not even have the opportunity to be a son of God, that God would not have sons, first of all. And even if he did, that Job certainly would not be one of them. Along with their view of God, they presented man as untrustworthy and vile. They used three words that sort of gave a sense of what their view of man was as a worm, a maggot, and a moth, what we called last week as crushables. It's a pretty distorted view of God, and it's a pretty low view of man. Job, on the other hand, a man who knew God, said of God, I can't find him right now. One of the central passages last week in Job chapter 23, verse 10, one of the central passages, I'm looking forward, I can't find him. I'm looking behind me, and I can't find him. To my left and my right, I can't find him, but I know that he knows where I am, 
And I know that in the end, what he's doing with me is he's making of me gold. Man, it says a lot about God just in that view that God actually, despite what Bildad and Eliphaz think of God as treating man as a worm, a maggot, and a moth, as untrustworthy, as vile, that God actually is refining of us and making of us gold. It's tremendous value. He values us enough to shape us and to breathe life into us and to make us something special for his own glory. I think what hit me last week and in the days since then and as I've been preparing for this week is realizing that getting God wrong will almost guarantee that you're going to get man wrong. As to purpose, as to value, as to meaning. If you get God wrong, you're going to get man wrong. And Job is a great book that it gives us a wonderful view on who God is and who man is. This week, um, I think that Job is going to give us even more insight into who God is and who man is. Uh, just to kind of give you a sense of what we're doing this morning, there, um, there's a center section in the book of Job that are called the Dialogues. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I shared that with you, this uh, a pattern of interchange between these three supposed friends and Job. It's not a real exciting section of the book. And frankly, I think it's where uh, I often bail out if I'm reading through the book of Job because you kind of get lost in these back and forth arguments. Uh, his friends say one thing, Job responds. His friends say something else, Job responds. And there's three different rounds of that. They began in chapter 4 with Eliphaz um, sharing his thoughts with Job. And then in chapter 6... Job does something that he does throughout. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Job answered and said. Okay, there's nothing spectacular about that. The word answer there is a, comes from a Hebrew word that means answer. Um, actually, there's nothing special about the whole idea and the whole thing. He just responded to Eliphaz. He's going to do the same thing in chapter 9, verse 1. He's going to respond to the next guy. And then Job answered and said, and then in chapter 12, verse 1, I want you to just kind of flip through this with me and see how Job is responding to each of these guys. Not in what he's saying, but what he's doing. Chapter 12, verse 1, Job answered and said. Chapter 16, verse 1, then Job answered and said. Chapter 19, verse 1, Job answered and said. Chapter 21, verse 1, Job answered and said. Chapter 23, verse 1, Job answered and said. And chapter 26, verse 1, Job answered Bildad and said. It's not real exciting. You would expect that he's going to answer what's been, uh, what he's been addressed, or uh, what his friends have said to him, and he responds with an answer. But something really unique and special happens at the beginning of chapter 27. And it's really going to be the basis for how we spend the morning. The beginning of chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 29. Let's look at something that Job does that's different from what's happened so far. Really, it's, what he's doing is no different. But what, what is different is what the narrator says Job is doing. Chapter 27, verse 1. And Job again took up his discourse and said. And then also in chapter 29, really the last few words that Job shares to his friends... And then later he speaks to God, but as to, to speaking to his friends, chapter 29, verse 1, and Job again took up his discourse 
and said. Now this word, unlike the word answer, it comes from a Hebrew word that means answer. This word actually means something different from discourse. It's not just a conversation. Job is not just continuing his conversation with his buddies. This word is very important and very special. I want to show you where else it's used. If you can, just turn over to Proverbs chapter 1 with me. Proverbs chapter 1. It's just a couple of books to the right. Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. That's the first use of the word in the book of Proverbs. You might not see it in there. You don't see the word discourse because the word actually means and is translated here in Proverbs. And I don't know why in the wide world of sports it's not translated this way in the book of Job as the word Proverbs. See, up to chapter 27, verse 1, and chapter 29, verse 1 in the book of Job, Job is responding and answering his friends. But the narrator says something different, and something profound happens in chapter 27 and chapter 29. Job starts speaking Proverbs. Here's another occasion that it's used just a few verses later in verse 6. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. It's also used in chapter 10, verse 1. The proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. You're familiar with the word proverbs. It's a Greek or, excuse me, a Hebrew word. That's the word moshal. Okay, it's a, uh, uh, there's nothing special about the word, but it means proverb. And again, I don't know why. It's translated as discourse in Job, but it's very important that we connect to the word as it should be translated here as proverb. Elsewhere in the book of Proverbs, uh, uh, the root word is used in a different way. Here's an example in chapter 12, verse 24. The hand of the diligent will rule. That's the root word of mashal is timshal, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Here's another example, chapter 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules Moshel, his spirit, than he who takes a city. Proverbs 17, verse 2. A servant who deals wisely will rule Yimshal, using the root word again for Proverbs, over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Now, the reason I've taken you through that little process there, looking at some ancient Hebrew words and their root words and how it's used in the book of Proverbs, is first of all, that word mishal means Proverbs. That's what the narrator says about Job in chapter 27 and chapter 29. And it's also used to connect, that root word is connecting to the concept of rule. There's something very profound and it's, it's, it's discreet, it's, it's almost obscure in the book of Job where the narrator now has recognized that Job has begun speaking in the language of kings. That's how we're going to spend our morning. As of chapter 27 and chapter 29, the narrator is saying of Job, up to this point he's just answering his friends. But here as of chapter 27 and chapter 29, he is speaking the language of kings. What began as a lament in chapter 3, and then a jumbled mess of emotions. If you've read the book of Job, you know exactly what I'm talking about. A jumbled mess of emotions and confusion later in the story. As the catastrophes continue through his friends and their accusations, Job's words actually become wisdom. His words actually become proverbs. He's speaking kingly words now as of chapter 27 
in chapter 29. He's speaking the wise words of royalty now. He's speaking Proverbs. And here's the important point of the morning. God is making of Job a king. He's already pointed out that God is making of Job gold. But now there's the concept and the important thought in the book of Job is that God is making of Job a king. If you've been paying attention to the story of Job, you know so far that he already was a king. He was what we would call a micro-king of a little micro-kingdom. He had property. He had critters. He had uh, what we might call now a big, expansive ranch in Edom, ancient Edom. He was already a micro-king, and God allowed all that he had to be stripped away. Job even characterized it as, he has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He's acknowledged that he was in many ways a king and that God took all of that away. He took all of his livestock, he took all of his servants, he took his large family, he lost everything. He even lost his health. He became what the world would call anything but a king. He became what the world might call a bum or a street person. I read this this week kind of characterizing poverty. He had too much month left at the end of his money. This guy had nothing. But God, according to the narrator, is making of Job a king. Now, if Job is speaking Proverbs here, we can go to his words to try and make sense of this. So turn to chapter 29 of Job. We're going to listen to Job's words and see if we can make sense of this... um, how they're, how they're giving us insight into this new voice that he has as a king. Chapter 29, verse 1. And Job again took up his discourse and said, we're going to jump down to verse 12. We know he's speaking the language of Proverbs here, the language of kings, according to the narrator. And in verse 12, let's listen to what he says about his old kingdom. Listen to what he says about the king that he was beginning in verse 12. I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. This king, this little micro king in Edom had a view to the fatherless. He had a view to those who were going to perish. He had a view to the widow. He put on righteousness, as it says, and he clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him who did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Man, what a king. What a king so far, right? In this micro kingdom, in this previous kingdom, in this previous king that he was. He says in verse 18, Then I thought, I shall die in my nest and I shall multiply my days as the sand. That's a summary way of saying that I was set. I was set. I had this kingdom. I had this responsibility, I had this rule, I had this place in the world. In verse 19, it says, My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. Man, he was set. That's the king that he was before he lost everything. And now we can look down. Now, let's pick up the rest of this. It's so good. Down to verse 25. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. He was like E.F. Hutton. 
you'd speak, and I'm aging myself, dating myself, if you know what E.F. Hutton commercials I'm talking about. Men listened to him and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence. In the light of my face, they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief. I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Job was set. This is the king that he was. Now, beginning in chapter 30, let's look at the king that he is now. But now, I hate those two words. They're two great words in Ephesians chapter 2. These you don't want to see. You're going to see but God, but here you see but now. Ironically, God's behind this but now as well. As well. It says, but now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands? Men whose vigor is gone. That's the kind of men that are now that he's speaking of. Men whose vigor is gone. Through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick salt work and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. Okay, these guys are lowly guys he's speaking about now. They're driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents, they must dwell in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together, a senseless, nameless brood... They have been whipped out of the land, and now I've become their song. I'm the guy those guys are making fun of. I was set. That's the king that I was. I had all this going for me. I would even speak, just speak, just the words, and people would be silent and listen to me. Say, oh, sage Job, tell us what you have to say. And now the guys, the scum of the earth is what he's saying. Those guys are the guys that are making fun of me. That's the king that I've become. I'm a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. Man, what a king he's become, right? I think if we had our choice, we would opt to be the first king. And I think if Job had the choice, he would opt to be the first king. But here's the reality. This is the king that he's become. If you want a nice visual of the king that he's become, you can look down at verse 19. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. If you want to get a kind of sense, a visual of the kind of king that Job has become, he's become the king of dust and ashes. The king of dust and ashes. It's a nice visual. We might even call him a contrary king. If you've been hearing this so far, if you've been paying attention so far, I know it's a unique morning. I know there are passages that we've been jumping around to. We've talked about Hebrew. I know there's whole sections here that I'm reading that you haven't had the chance to read, so there might be some difficulty there. Let me give you a visual, just a little taste of another contrary king where this might come into focus for what Job is living out right here, what God has made of Job. Chapter, or John chapter 12, listen to this. The next day... The large crowd that came to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And this is Christ's response. I'll show you another contrary king and how he responds. Hearing their cries, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, find me a donkey's colt. Not a big stallion, not something that a proper king would ride. 
but something that a contrary king would rise, something where my feet might drag the ground like a goober. It says in this passage, the disciples are like, that. I don't even understand, what are you doing? Kings don't ride donkeys' colts. But that's what happened here. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it's written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Huh. What kind of king is that? His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Maybe this has given a sense of the kind of king that we're talking about in chapter 13. This is the kind of king we're talking about. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end during supper when the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. And began to wash disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Is this the kind of king that God makes of people? Is this the kind of king that God has made of Job? Chapter 19 of John says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. And put it on his head. And arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. It's a contrary king. That's a contrary king. One who rides a donkey's colt. One who washes dirty feet of fishermen and tax collectors. He's like a king who was stripped of everything and was nailed to a cross and counted sarcastically the king of the Jews. Job, too, is a different sort of king. He still sits in dust and ashes. He's still covered in boils. He's still surrounded by his enemies. His children are still dead. He's still rejected, spit upon, and mocked. And it's here, as Job hangs on his version of the cross... Rejected by men, the narrator identifies him as a God-wrought, God-bought, God-shaped king. A contrary king. I don't know about you, but the folks that I have heard the wisest words from over the course of my life have been people who suffered. Wisdom somehow comes from those who've suffered and those who've lived it. Those who've been pushed beyond themselves and have had to draw on something unseen and someone unseen. In Job's suffering, God has, or Job has sought God 
He's pressed in to know God. And God has made himself known to him. And God is making of Job a proverb-speaking, wise, contrary king. I really only have one point for you this morning. One application point. In your suffering and in your struggles, whatever they are, whatever version they are, we all have our own versions. In addition to making gold of you, you can know this, that God is making kings of you. God is making kings of you. Genesis chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 22 are nice bookends to this thought. They may be new thought this morning. It's a sermon that as I was thinking on, as I was preparing for, I was like, I've been a Christian 44 years and I don't really have a parking place for this notion of being a king. God is shaping us into kings. But listen to a coronation of a king. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God crowned a king that day that he made Adam. At the end of the story in Revelation chapter 22 is the other bookend. At the end of the age, here's what it's going to sound like. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's what's going to be made of us in the end. Revelation chapter 22 verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever, and those they speak of his servants. He's speaking of us. This may be an altogether new concept for you, but the reality is we were made for reigning and ruling in the beginning, and that's what we'll do in the end, realize it or not. And now in this middle spot that we're calling life, in this whole middle section of our Bible, the rest of our Bible, he is making kings of us. He's readying us too, like he was readying Job. To reign and rule with him. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's the last place I'm going to have you turn this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll give you a minute. I don't hear his pages turn. Come on. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Paul addresses the church in Corinth because they're not ruling well. They're taking their cases outside of the church to deal with matters that they ought to be dealing with well in the church. Believers, each of us, here's the reality for Corinth and the believers in Corinth and believers in Greenville, each of us are destined to reign with Christ. That's something that you should realize. And a big part of the New Testament ethic for how you move and how you study and how you are equipped and how you are readied is readying to reign and rule for eternity. That'll change how you read your New Testament, realizing, oh, wait a second. He's preparing me to reign and rule. And some of that plays out right here in the church. This is what's going on in Corinth. They're not handling these things well. And in case you get this notion that this reign and rule is to be a big boss telling people what to do, realize here, even in this passage, that judging and ruling is to be done so humbly that you're willing to even suffer wrong. You're willing even to be defrauded. And this will change the way you read your New Testament. The New Testament ethic has to do with your future role and your reign and your rule as a king. You are kings in training. Contrary kings, servant kings, kings covered in dust and ashes. Those things that you're going through, those difficulties, I'm, I can look around the room and I can call them out. The difficulties, the specific, surgical almost, difficulties that you are facing. And there's so many in here. I can see them in here. Those things are what God is using to ready you to reign and rule. They're the things that God is using to give you some words of wisdom. To give you the ability that when you speak, that you have some wise, kingly words to share. Apart from those struggles that you go through... Man, I, I don't have a whole lot to hear from people that just live this charmed life. They don't have a whole lot to offer me. But people that have lived some hard, difficult realities, some hard, difficult things, they have some wise words to share. This should give you a sobriety about your calling, too, as you realize, wait a second, God's using those things to ready me to be a king of dust and ashes, a king ready to reign and rule for eternity. It should give you a sobriety in your calling now, seeing a God who values you, first of all, but also has specific purpose and meaning and responsibility for you as you walk out your calling. One of the things that's in store in the life of this church this fall that I think is the next step in our maturing as a church is uh, what will probably be a six to eight week series of sermons on congregational authority. We have been an elder ruled church for the last 15 years. That word might sound funny to you because you may not have felt ruled. I hope you haven't because that word actually just means led. You've been an elder ruled church that's really been elder led where we have made the sort of many decisions about the direction and course of our church. Something that's going to be happening this fall is we're going to be uh, Scott and Brad, Scott primarily, but Brad also, are going to be preaching a sermon series exploring the authority and responsibility that God has given you as a member of this church, as a king in training. Every single person that's ever been baptized, whether it's right here in this holy trough or whether it was somewhere else, if you've been baptized into the people of God, you are a keys-wielding member of the church. And you have an authority to reign and rule as such. We're going to have a series on that this fall. I think this, this little 
sermon this morning is sort of an installment in that, maybe kind of a uh, sowing a seed to get ready for that, to not only pray for your part in that, pray for your attentiveness, pray for Scott and Brad's readiness to preach that series, and pray for us as a church that we would move well in this next chapter. It's an uncharted notion for me. As I shared with you, I've been a Christian for 44 years, and the notion of uh, kings in making and congregational authority even is something that's, that's new to me and novel. And um, I feel pretty ill-equipped and ill-prepared to even preach this morning. I've been really, uh, really discombobulated this week. I had one of those weeks where I felt like um, sort of a uh, defective human, uh, remedial human. And here i got to go preach on Sunday. Man, I hope he can just take the foolish things and confound the wise maybe to offer up something that might be of value this morning. Because I don't feel like a king. And I don't imagine Job did either. But maybe there's some wisdom can come from that. Let's pray. God, you have to have a sense of humor to um, call folks like us to uh, reign and rule with you. God, I pray that you would give us uh, a humility in that. Uh, that you would foster a teachability, um, a movability, responsiveness, a sobriety. Just pray that you would use this somehow. Christ, let me pray. Amen. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 is a passage I want to consider this morning for the supper. It's one that I've never read this way before this week. It's one I've read before a number of times, but never read it this way. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man. Okay, death is reigning there. That passage says clearly, death reigns. If through one man's trespass, that's Adam's trespass, death reigned. Okay, you see who's reigning. Much more, uh, excuse me, let me see if I can see this. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gifts of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I hope you recognize there's a switched role there, a switched reigning uh, thing. Death reigned in the past in this passage, but because of Christ's work, because of his cross, because of his life, because of his death and his resurrection, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, that's us, we reign in life. So death reigned before, now we reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate and enjoy each week as we take the supper. We are blood-bought kings eating weekly with the victor. That's what our supper is every single week. Let's distribute the elements.